Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Good to be together on this wonderful Lord's Day. Worship God and study from His Holy Word together. So glad to have guests here with us as well. As we begin our study this morning from God's Word, I want to ask you to direct your attention with me to the verses that Brother Andy read for us this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I want you to notice how in those verses, the Apostle Paul, he tells us something very incredible about the Bible. He tells us that when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to this book that we are blessed to have in our possession this morning, it actually... It actually comes from God. It actually is a point of contact between us and God. It actually is inspired by God. It actually has been delivered by God to the men who pen the words. Here in this verse, Paul tells us that every part of the Bible comes from God. The question is, how can we be sure we have all of it? How can we be sure that we have all of the inspired word of God? Maybe a better way we could ask that question is how exactly did the Bible come together? How exactly did these 66 books make their way into the Bible? Why didn't all these other books that we hear so much about today, why didn't they make it into the Bible? How can we be so sure that these other books we hear about are not inspired as well? Why were they left out of the Bible? I mean, were they oppressed and, and left out by evil and biased men? Well, were they voted out of the Bible a long time ago? Did some church council deem them as unworthy of, of being placed in the Bible? How exactly, how exactly did the Bible come together? Believe it or not, but for many critics of Christianity, they attack and try to undermine the validity of our faith by asking questions like this. Believe it or not, but many critics of Christianity try to get us to doubt that the Bible is really everything that God intends it to be. Movies like The Da Vinci Code promote the idea that certain books of the Bible or certain books were supposed to be in the Bible, but, but, but they were oppressed. They were taken out. They were voted out a long time ago by a bunch of religious men who had an agenda. Books like the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas. They were supposed to also be in the Bible, but they got left out. They got taken out. They got oppressed by a council of religious leaders, believe it or not. But there are a lot of people who believe those things and they suggest those things. The question is, what about you? The question is, what about your faith? What about your belief? Do you believe that we have all the Bible? Do you believe, really believe, that we have all 
the Bible, as we get ready to dive into another lesson this month that is designed to equip us and prepare us to always be ready to give good Bible answers to the Bible questions that people ask us, if you don't mind, I want to transition today from talking about the church like we've talked about for the last several weeks, and I want to talk with you about the Bible. I want to talk with you about the Bible. I want to talk with you about why we can trust the Bible. I want to talk with you about why we can trust that we have all the Bible. I want to talk with you about some of the things we should boldly explain to people when they question us about the canonization of the Bible. And I certainly understand. I understand that this word canonization that I have on the slide behind me, I understand that's, the, that's not a word we use in our, everyday, in our everyday lives. I get that. I understand that we don't talk with our spouse each day about canonization. We don't talk with our kids about canonization. We don't talk with our coworkers and our friends about canonization. I understand this word canonization is not a word that we use in our daily lives, but I also do believe that it is an appropriate word that describes what we're talking about this morning. I believe that it is a perfect word to describe what we are talking about this morning. You see the word canon, the word canon and canonization refers to the rule or the standard for what we believe and practice. Canon means the rule or the standard for what we believe and practice and canonization refers to the process the process of recognizing that standard. In our case, when it comes to being Christians in the Bible, when we talk about canonization, all we're talking about is what belongs in the Bible. What belongs in the sacred text? Who decided that? Who determined that? How did they determine that? That's what we mean when we use the word canonization. That is the question that a lot of people have today. And let me just say that when it comes to the Old Testament, there's really no controversy. There's really no dilemma there. The Old Testament canon was a settled issue in the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And let me show you exactly what I mean. Will you go in your Bible, please, to Luke, the 24th chapter? Will you go to Luke chapter 24, please? I want to show you how this issue about the canon in the Old Testament scriptures, the 39 books that make up the Old Testament, there was no controversy about this in the time of Jesus and the, and the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. In Luke 24, we read about the occasion when Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? Well, when Jesus appeared to these two men, the Bible says in Luke 24 and verse 37, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all and all the scriptures. Notice how here the scriptures are a reference to the writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets. Those are scriptures. Now go to Luke 24 and verse number 44, when Jesus appeared to his apostles on this occasion. In Luke 24 and verse number 44, it says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that all the things which are written about me and the law of Moses, the law of Moses, there's a reference to the first five books of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus says, while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Notice how based on what these verses tell us in the time of Jesus, the Old Testament canon looked exactly like the Old Testament canon we have today. In the time of Jesus, Jesus says, Jesus says that the Old Testament canon, the scriptures, were made up of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, not the Apocrypha. Not those 14 Jewish books of history that were written between the Testaments that a lot of people believe belong in the Bible today, not the writings of Josephus, not the writings of any other Jewish historian who was uninspired and lived before Josephus. No, sir, and no, ma'am. According to what Jesus says, the Old Testament canon consisted of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's what he taught his disciples from. That's what he quoted from. That is what he preached from all throughout his ministry. That's what his apostles preached from all throughout their ministries. All throughout their ministries, Jesus and his apostles put their stamp of approval on the Old Testament canon over and over again. By preaching from the Old Testament canon over and over again, Jesus and his apostles tell us, that we can trust the Old Testament canon. We can trust that the Old Testament canon that we have before us this morning is exactly the same way it was in their time. This was a settled matter in the time of Jesus. There was no controversy about it. There were no questions about it. The Old Testament canon was settled in the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago, but when it comes to the New Testament canon, well, brothers and sisters, the New Testament canon is a little more controversial. The New Testament canon is actually where the battle is being waged with the critics of Christianity. The reason why that is is because we need to understand that it took several decades for Christians to get a firm grip on what the canon was. And let me show you why that was. Go in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the book of 2 Thessalonians is one of Paul's first letters. In fact, many believe this may have been the second letter that he penned, inspired letter that he penned. And in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1, Paul told the church at Thessalonica, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice how even in the time of the first century, even, the, even in the time of the apostles, even in the time of people like Paul and Peter and James and John, it wasn't easy for the early Christians 
to determine what was coming from God and what was not coming from God. Due to a lot of materials and letters that are being pumped out by false teachers during this time, Paul had to urge the Thessalonians here to be careful. He, he had to urge them to be cautious. He had to urge them to be weary about receiving letters that claimed to come from him and the other apostles. He says that there were a lot of false letters that were going out during this time, and that certainly complicated things for the brethren. That certainly made it difficult for the brethren to figure out what was scripture and what was not scripture. In fact, beyond false teachers sending out a bunch of false letters during this time, we need to understand that a lot of good Christians, a lot of good brethren, a lot of faithful servants of God, even friends of the apostles, they were putting letters out as well. They were sending messages out as well, like Christians today, write books and put out blog messages and articles and social media messages during this time in the first century. There were also a lot of Christians who were passing around well-intended messages. They were passing around well-intended messages that were designed to encourage Christians and build them up in the faith. Some of these materials included the Shepherd of Hermas and the epistle of Barnabas, and the epistle of Polycarp to the church in Philippi, and the letter of Clement to the church at Corinth. You see, while none of these works are inspired, or even claim to be inspired, they did complicate things for the brethren. They did make things difficult for the brethren. The brethren had to have some discussions and debates as to whether or not these kind of materials were just great personal letters that were being sent out by a bunch of good Christians or if they were in fact the inspired word of God. It wasn't easy for the early Christians to sort out what was coming from God and what was not coming from God. And so the question is, how did they sort it all out? How did they figure it all out? What process did the early Christians use to figure out what was coming from God and what was not coming from God? Well, before I answer that question directly, allow me a few moments just to talk with you about the process of how the New Testament books are put together and distributed. First, let me suggest that when it comes to the New Testament books, the New Testament books, and that is all 27 New Testament books, the 27 New Testament books we have before us this morning, they were all written in the first century. That is very, very important. All the New Testament books, all 27 were written in the first century, and they were written either by an apostle or a prophet of God. After they were written by an apostle or a prophet, they were then immediately copied and they were shared among the local churches in the first century Roman world. The Apostle Paul talks about this several times in his writings. I'm going to the book of Colossians. In Colossians, the fourth chapter. In Colossians chapter 4, look at verse number 16. In Colossians chapter 4, verse number 16, as the Apostle Paul gets ready to close the book of Colossians, he says to the church, when this letter, this letter, the book of Colossians, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans 
and you for your part read my letter and many think this is a reference to the book of Ephesians he says read my letter that is coming from Laodicea notice how in this time books like Colossians and Ephesians they were being copied and they were making their way throughout the churches they were circulating throughout the local churches at this time go in your Bible to 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 now in 1st Thessalonians 5 and verse number 27 Paul says to the church at Thessalonica I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Letters like this were being read in the public worship assemblies in the time of the first century. Look at Galatians chapter 1. We go to Galatians chapter 1 and we look at the first two verses of the book of Galatians. Paul says, and here he's going to identify himself as the writer. That is critically important that he, do, that he, that he does that based on all these letters that are going out at this time. And he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches, to the churches of Galatia. Notice how this letter was not just sent to one church. He was sent to a bunch of churches. It was being passed around among a bunch of churches in the region of Galatia. What I want you to see is the New Testament books were written in the first century. They were written by an apostle or a prophet. They were then copied and they were shared among the churches. And as they were going out among the churches, they were recognized by the brethren as scripture. They were recognized as letters that were coming from God. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, Paul told the church at Corinth, if there are prophets among you, let them recognize that the things I write to you or the commandments of the Lord. The people in Corinth knew that Paul was writing to them. The commandments of the Lord, they knew this because he was a man who could perform miracles to demonstrate that he was in fact speaking from God. You go to 2 Peter 3 and verse 16. And Peter, when talking about Paul's writings, not only does he say that Paul wrote some stuff that's hard to understand, and I think there Peter's talking about the book of Romans. But not only did Paul write some stuff that's hard to understand, he also referred to Paul's writings as scripture. He says Paul's writing scripture. Scripture comes from God. And then look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and look at verse number 17, please. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, and in verse number 17, Paul here is speaking about elders in the church. And he says when it comes to elders or shepherds in the church, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard in preaching and teaching for the Scripture. Notice that. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now notice how in that passage, verse 18, Paul quotes from two different places in the Bible. The first place he quotes from is from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4. That's where you find you should not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament canon there. But that second part, the laborer is worthy of his wages, that's not found in the Old Testament. That's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. When Paul quotes that there, he's quoting from the Gospel of Luke. He's quoting from Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
You see, at this time, books like Luke were being recognized as scripture. They were being recognized by brothers and sisters as coming from God. The scriptures, the New Testament books were being copied. And they were being shared all over the place among the people of God. And many debates took place among brethren as a result of this. Many debates and discussions were taking place over what was scripture and what was not scripture. My dear friends, denying this when talking to skeptics and critics will only make us look foolish. It will only make us look like we don't know what we're talking about. It's only going to make us look like we're denying what, the, what history and the evidence clearly shows us. As these books were going around the place and these letters were going around the place in the first century, many debates and many discussions were taking place among the brethren about what was scripture and what was not scripture. And I'm going to be honest with you, I believe that that process was a good thing. I believe that that was a great thing. I believe that, that shows us that the early brothers and sisters did not just accept anything as scripture. They did not just accept anything as coming from God. Instead, they wanted to be sure. They wanted to be certain. They wanted to be certain that whatever they read from or preached from in their public assemblies was actually coming from God. Something being declared as scripture that was critically important to the early brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture carried a lot of weight with the early Christians. In fact, as these discussions, as these discussions continued on for a few years, as early as the mid-2nd century, lists were being put together by Christians, recognizing which materials were to be considered as scripture and which were not. Now, some of these lists that were going out were widely accepted at first, while and others were not, but as time went by, guess what? The lists all started looking the same. The list started looking identical. Christians in the first and second century Roman world started knowing with absolute certainty what was coming from God and what was not coming from God. For example, when it came to the 13 letters that we know for certain were written by the Apostle Paul, we need to understand that all of those 13 letters were almost immediately accepted as scripture by the early Christians. Because many of them knew Paul and they could recognize his writings. They almost immediately accepted the letters that he was putting out as scripture. But when it came to other books of the Bible, it took a little bit longer. We got to be honest about that. It took a little bit longer for books like Hebrews. There were questions about Hebrews. Why? Well, because it was written anonymously. To this day, we still don't know who wrote Hebrews. There had to be some discussions about Hebrews. There were also questions surrounding the book of James. And the books of 2nd and 3rd John and the book of Jude. And while Revelation was immediately accepted as scripture by the brethren, because it was an encouraging message during a difficult time, as time went by, there started to be some questions about Revelation as well. There had to be some discussions about Revelation because of the difficult style and the complicated style that it was written in. There were a lot of discussions taking place among the early Christians in regards to what was Scripture 
and what was not scripture. In fact, all these discussions involved answering three important questions. There are three questions we got to answer. First, if we're going to recognize something as scripture, we need to know who wrote this book. We got to know who wrote this book. I mean, if we were living in the time of the first century, think about this, okay? We're living in the time of the first century, me and you. And let's say we're members of the church at Corinth. We're members of the church at Corinth. We get a letter one day in the mail claiming to come from an apostle, claiming to, to be something that comes from God. Wouldn't we want to know if that's really the case? Would we want to know who wrote this letter? I mean, if we can know with certainty that this letter we got as a church is coming from the Apostle Paul or any other apostle, that's going to carry a lot of weight with us, right? That's going to excite us. That, that's going to fire us up. That's going to be something that we want to read and we want to preach from that. We want to preach from that on Sunday. See, if we know that this letter we're getting is coming from an apostle, that's going to carry a lot of weight with us, but if we're not certain who this letter came from, then we're going to want to talk about that. We're going to want to have some discussion about that. We're going to want to ask, have an opportunity to, to ask some questions about that. We're going to want to ask questions like, who all is accepting this book? I mean, are other Christians also accepting this book as scripture? Since we're living in a time when miracles are still going on, they're about to cease, but we still got we still got prophets in the church. We got a few prophets in this church at Corinth. Let's ask them if they recognize that this letter is coming from God. Do our prophets here recognize this as scripture? Do we have friends or relatives of the apostles in this congregation who can help us verify that this letter is coming from them? Do we have some faithful brethren that we know of that we can contact who can let us know if they're quoting from this letter and recognizing it as scripture? See, we need to answer these questions before we accept this letter we just got as scripture. We need to answer these questions before we read from this letter in the public assembly. We need to answer these questions before we preach from this and try to make application of this letter to our lives. And so imagine again, imagine again, we're living in the first century. And we're members of the church of Corinth. We're all members of the church of Corinth. And one day we get a letter. We get a letter from this guy named Clement. We get a letter from Clement. And we know Clement. Many of us know Clement. Clement's a good guy. He's a good brother. He's a brother in Christ. And he gives us a letter. And one on one particular Lord's Day, maybe Andy gets up and he, and, he, and he reads from it. He stands up here and he reads from Clement's letter. In fact, not only does he read from Clement's letter, but he cites it as scripture. He says, I'm reading to you this morning the word of God. Here's our scripture reading. And little does Andy know that in the assembly there is somebody from the church in Philippi. They're visiting with us today. They're traveling through there. And so they hear Andy quote Clement's letter as scripture. And afterwards, these visitors from Philippi, they pull one of our shepherds aside and they ask him, why did y'all do that? We never heard of a letter from Clement before. Now, we have heard of First and Second Thessalonians. 
And we've heard of Ephesians. We've heard of Colossians. We've heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We even heard about these two inspired letters that came to you here in Corinth. We recognize those things of scripture just like you do, but we've never heard anything about a letter coming from Clement. Now, Clement may be a good guy. He may be a good brother, but we've never heard anything about him passing a letter around that scripture. We need to know who wrote the book. We need to know who's all accepting the book. And then thirdly, maybe most importantly, we need to know what the book is teaching. What is this book teaching? You know, one of the remarkable things about the Bible, and I think we can all agree on this, is the Bible. In the Bible, you got a remarkable thread of unity that kind of weaves its way throughout. Would you agree with that? I mean, think about it. The Bible is truly remar a remarkable book because even though it was written over a period of 1,500 years, about 40 different writers, many of whom didn't know one another, and they had different occupations, and they spoke in different languages, and they lived in, in different parts of the world, despite all that stuff, the Bible is still a unified whole. The Bible is still completely void of any kind of contradiction. The Bible is absolutely consistent in everything that it teaches. But let me tell you something. If we start adding these, these so-called lost books of the, New, of the New Testament to the equation, if we start adding these Gnostic Gospels to the equation, if we start adding these books who were not written, who were written, I'm sorry, by uninspired men, these books that were not recognized by, as scripture by the early Christians or by brethren who knew the apostles, these books who were written several decades later, sometimes hundreds of years later, after the apostles are already dead, if we start accepting those books, then guess what? We're going to have some problems. We're going to have some doctrinal problems. We're going to be accepting some material as scripture, even though this stuff is teaching things like Jesus is not deity. Jesus is not divine. Jesus is not God. Jesus did not come in the flesh. Jesus got married to Mary Magdalene and he had a couple of kids. What I just want you to see is when you start putting the answers to these kind of questions together, then you're able to see how through the providence of God, through the providence of God, brethren in the first century and in the second century were able to accurately figure out the canon. They were able to accurately figure out what was coming from God and what was not coming from God. This wasn't something that was done overnight. This wasn't something that was done in a couple of days or a couple of years or even a couple of decades. This was a process. This was a process. It involved a lot of discussions, a lot of debates, a lot of lists had to be formulated. In fact, this brings us to the three points of application I want to give you from this lesson, and we're going to be done. First, I want you to take home from this that the critics are wrong. The critics are wrong. The skeptics are wrong. The canon of the New Testament was not determined by men. When I say it wasn't determined by men, I mean that it wasn't determined by a council. 
It wasn't determined by a bunch of scholars. It wasn't determined by the Roman Catholic Church. Long before the Roman Catholic Church even came into existence, the New Testament canon was already finished. It had already been determined. Members of the Lord's Church already knew what was Scripture and what was not Scripture. By 150 A.D., way before the Catholic Church even came onto the scene, way before any kind of pope had been appointed, lists were already circulating among God's people about what should be regarded as Scripture. The list of Origen, the list of Eusebius, the list of Athenaeus, all these lists had come out at least a couple hundred years before there was any kind of Roman Catholic Church. The early Christians already knew what the canon was. The Roman Catholic Church had not determined the canon, and neither did any kind of church council. That's right, contrary to what you may have heard from the critics, no church council determined the canon. No church, no church council voted on which books belong in the canon. They didn't oppress certain books from being in the Bible. I don't care if you're talking about the Council of Carthage, the Synod of Hippo, the Council of Nicaea. All of those councils are way too late. They're way too late. This issue had already been settled. This issue had already been determined. It would have been practically impossible for any council to vote books out of the Bible that were supposed to be there, and they were already widely being accepted by people who were truly the people of God, Christians. The critics are wrong. No church council, no Roman Catholic church determined the canon. The canon had already been determined way before these things came along. That's the first thing I wanted you to take home. And then secondly, take home that the early brethren took scripture very seriously. They took scripture very seriously. We know they took scripture very seriously because remember what I told you, they didn't just eagerly accept anything as scripture when they received it in the first century. They didn't just get a letter from somebody and say, oh, okay, this is scripture. We're going to get up and read it on Sunday. They didn't do that. Instead, they had discussions. They had debates. They had arguments. They wanted to make sure that these letters that were circulating, they were receiving, they were written by men who actually were apostles. They were written by men who were prophets. These early Christians, they took scripture very, very seriously. The question is, do we? Do we take scripture seriously? Do, do we understand the importance of having scripture? Do we understand what makes scripture scripture? Do we understand the significance of getting revelation that actually comes from God? Do we understand that the Bible is not just some ordinary book that has been written from the mind of a man, but instead it is the book, it is the only book to come from God himself. It is the only book that is inspired of God, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It is the only book that is profitable and able to make us everything that God intends us to be. Do we understand the seriousness of Scripture like the early Christians did? If we do, then it shouldn't be hard for us to read from it every day. It shouldn't be difficult for us to carve our time every single day to read it, to meditate on it, to pray about it, and most importantly, 
to make sure we do it in every aspect of our lives. The early brethren took Scripture very seriously. And then thirdly, let me close with this. Let me close by saying you can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible. You can trust that you have all the Bible. You can trust that because ultimately you can trust in the power of God. In Psalm 135 and verse number six, the psalmist says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth and the seas and in all the deeps, God does anything he wants to do. Look at first Peter. I'm going to close with this. First Peter, chapter one. And in verse number 22, in first Peter one in verse number 22, Peter says, since you have an obedience to the truth. Purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart, for you've been born again, if you're a Christian. You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of God, the word of the Lord endures. It endures forever. I want you to think carefully about what Peter says in that passage. Will you do that for me? I want to submit to you that the same God who has the power to do anything he wants to do according to Psalm 135, he also has the power which not only reveal his word, but also preserve his word. Also maintain his word. Also make sure providentially that it remains exactly how he wants it to be even in 2021. Peter says the word of the Lord, it endures forever. And if God is real, isn't that exactly what we should expect? I mean, if God is real, and he's certainly real, then I think it's safe to say that the Bible we have today is exactly what he intends it to be. I think it's safe to say the same God who spoke the world into existence, who made the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals and human beings and made it so that Jesus would be raised from the dead, that same God, he certainly has the power to protect his word, wouldn't you agree? He certainly has the power to preserve his word. He certainly has the power to maintain his word. No man, I don't care what man we're talking about, has the ability to distort and oppress the word of God. We can have confidence in the canon. And I realize there are many other questions you may have about this. I get that. I realize that you may have questions about the copying process of the Bible and the numerous transcripts we have of the Bible. I, I get we could talk about all that stuff, but I got a devo to get to. I can't stay here all day with you today. <laughs> we got to save that stuff for another time and another lesson. What I just want to do today is I just want to deal with the canon. I just want to give you some reasonable information, some reasonable evidence. To believe with all your heart that the Bible's right, the canon is right. Our early brethren were smart enough to realize what was coming from God, and they understood what Scripture was. We 
We serve a God who's fully capable, providentially, of preserving his word. And he's also able by his great power to save our souls. In fact, maybe there's somebody here this morning, that's exactly what you need God to do for you. You need God to save your soul. You need to not only believe in the Bible, but you need to obey the Bible. You need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's your desire this morning, then we want to help you with that. That means we need to take your confession that you believe in Jesus as the Lord, that he's the Christ, and you're willing to repent of your sins, change your life, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you are willing to obey this powerful gospel, this powerful Bible on this day, and the Lord will certainly keep his promise to wash away your sins. And if we can help you with that, come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing.